0: And set the door of the ark in its side, make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals. The male and this mate and a pair of the animals that are not clean the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also male and female to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth for in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And we will stop there. This is the word of the Lord. The scriptures are the story of God's unfolding project of the redemption of his people and the judgment of those that would reject him, which means the light of the gospel, the, the clarity about how God would accomplish this was like a sunrise that started perhaps dim, but but grew brighter and brighter slowly, and then coming to full blaze with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the the Savior, the bright and morning star. Peter speaks of of how when the prophets spoke, how the angels would hang on every word that they said, themselves longing with bated breath, to see how God would work it all out. You can read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 later to see that. It is a tremendous verse. And I say this because the text we are about to enter into, this, this Noah narrative with the ark and the flood, is a hugely significant moment in the story of the redemption and judgment of the world. Because it, it is in this story that God first uses the language Of covenant which is his ironclad promise to save a people for himself and as we'll see later in the covenant that he makes with Abraham his covenant would extend to all the nations of the world so yes the idea of covenant it has been in the story since the the garden the idea of it but today God brings even greater clarity on what salvation looks like. He gave the angels a bit more fodder for their hungry imaginations as to the structure of the gospel that would culminate in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, with that, let's turn now to the Noah account. So, the full account of this Noah narrative really goes from Genesis 9 to 9:19. 9, And since we'll be here for a few weeks, I think it will do us well to begin at first by by zooming out and seeing how the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to craft this account. Because he chose to record it through something that is called a chiasm, which is a literary technique that is used quite often in the scriptures, but that we often miss. As English speakers, but it is wonderfully helpful to, to see it because chiasms are, are wonderful things. They, they not only reveal the absolute brilliance by which God crafted the scriptures, but it also helps us see the main themes throughout the entire account. And chiasms ultimately point to the central idea, the main points of the story. So what is a chiasm? Well, a chiasm is is where the themes in the first half of a story culminate in a main point and then are parallel themes on the back half of the story. So real quick, let's say the story is a chiasm in five parts. Part one would be echoed by part five. And then part two would be echoed by part four, with three being the main point of the entire story and how it's expressed is a a prime b b prime and so i've actually included you may have noticed uh the Noaic chiasm for you in the liturgy just beneath the sermon title so if you'd open up there i, I want you to get your eyes on this again because we're going to spend a couple weeks here but this really helps us see the the themes and and really the brilliance of this inspired narrative so, you'll notice it, A is a transitional introduction with Noah and his sons, and then we'll see A prime, the very end, is a transitional conclusion, Noah and his sons. B, the corruption of all flesh, and then B prime, the covenant with all flesh. C, God's resolution to destroy the earth by the flood. C prime, God's resolution never again to destroy the earth by the flood. D, God's command and Noah's response, the entrance into the ark. And then D prime, you'll see God's command and Noah's response, the departure from the ark. E, the beginning of the flood and the inundating of the earth. E prime, the end of the flood and the drying of the earth. F, the rising of the waters. F prime, the recession of the waters. And then right in the center, the main theme, God's remembrance of Noah. Noah. And as we consider who the first readers of this would be, perhaps the Israelites after the Exodus, maybe, we can understand why the theme of God's remembrance was such a powerful theme for those readers, obviously, as well as us. Yes, the flood is a tremendous warning about the terrible consequences and the ultimate consequences of those who will not repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. In fact, we can't imagine a greater warning. But that is not the loudest theme. The loudest theme is that despite man's rebellion, God will be faithful to his covenant people and his covenant promise and see them through. God remembers. God is faithful. Indeed, that's quite literally what the rainbow will signify on the other side. We often think that when we see it, we're supposed to, remember God's promise but the text will actually say and I'm getting ahead of myself now that it is God remembering his promise to us but we'll get there in a couple weeks okay so though we'll unpack the details of the flood accounts this is the banner that flies over all of it God's faithfulness to his people so that's overview now to the text itself we've spent a lot of time talking about the corruption and the wickedness over the past couple of weeks, and that continues on in this theme. But that's not going to be our, our primary focus for today. When we come to verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And again, from there, the text goes on to describe the complete wickedness of the rest of the world. But Noah and these three sons stand as beacons of righteousness in the midst of a wicked world. And so they become the chosen vehicle God uses to preserve the seed of the Messiah. And so this, this is really the theme that I want us to wrestle with today. This is the big idea. Namely, Noah's righteousness and his obedience, and how, as Christians, we should understand the connection between those two, between righteousness and obedience. Because what's true is is sometimes we, we get very uncomfortable with Noah or really any person at all other than the Lord Jesus being described as righteous. I remember watching a sermon on Noah, perhaps a decade ago, And the preacher was saying about about these verses. Now, when it says that Noah was a a righteous man, do not think for a moment that he was better than anyone else on the earth. It was only the grace of God upon him because Noah was just as big of a sinner as everybody else. And and I, I understand the impulse to say that the problem with that is it's the exact opposite of the entire point of the text. That's. That's the problem with that interpretation. The the whole point of the verse is God putting a highlighter on the virtuous, morally exemplary man, the righteous man, Noah, in the midst of a wicked people. And so we need to let the text speak. God wrote it. He's not embarrassed by that. And we must bring our theology in conformity to the scriptures, not start with, our theology, and then come to the scriptures and try to make sure the, it fits perfectly and, and tidy. And the text says that, that Noah was righteous. It says he was a blameless man in his generation and that he walked with God, not unlike Job. Meaning, Noah was a practically virtuous, godly man. God wrote it, he repeated it, he highlighted it, and then he sandwiched it between two accounts of the thorough wickedness of the rest of the world to make sure we wouldn't miss it. And he was chosen to be saved from the coming judgment, apparently, in some way, because of his righteousness. And so that's the tension. So the question is as Christians, how do we think about this? And this reminds us that there are always two ditches on every road, and two ditches for every verse as well. And that's the case as we think through the righteousness of Noah as it's presented immediately. In The text, the, the first ditch is to think that Noah did good things out of the goodness of who he was. And in comparison with the rest of the world, since he was better, God chose to save him. So that is the damnable ditch of works righteousness. That's not even just a ditch. That's that's a pit. That is the direct way to the pit of hell to think on the final day, you'll show your resume and you'll be in the 51th percentile of the rest of the world, which, of course, is the default theology of the world. Millions of people will be stunned with how unimpressed the holy judge of all creation is, of the resume. And this, of course, we as Christians reject. We talked about this two weeks ago when we looked at original sin. We don't begin good. We don't even begin neutral. We begin sinful and hostile to God's authority over us. Psalm 143, 2 The psalmist says, enter not into judgment with your servant for no one living is righteous before you. So that pretty much settles it, right? So that's one ditch, thinking Noah was righteous solely because of his works in comparison with everybody else. And so God said, I'll save you because I'm so impressed. But the other ditch is what I've already pointed to, namely thinking that we should not give credence at all to the righteousness, to the moral uprightness of Noah, as if it has no bearing at all on how this narrative plays out when that's precisely what the Lord highlights multiple times to show the contrast of the people of God, the covenant people with the judgment on the world. And so how do we travel safely on the road of this verse without falling into either ditch? The ditch of works righteousness, and the ditch of rejecting clearly what the text says, that Noah was a righteous man in his day. Well, we do it, we do it by reading the Holy Spirit's commentary on Noah in Hebrews eleven seven, which says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, Constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So do you see how that worked? How did Noah become an heir of righteousness? So that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that redemption worked backwards and was applied to Noah. How did he become an inheritor of the gospel of grace? Well, first and foremost, through faith, through faith alone, just like Abraham, Noah believed God. He believed all the revelation that he had been given up until that point. He believed God. He said yes, and that was accounted to him as his righteousness. This righteousness had nothing to do with Noah's inherent goodness. It was all of grace from start to finish that Noah received by faith. But then notice what his faith did. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. That is, his righteous identity, which he received by faith alone, led to righteous action, which he did which he did in faith. And what he did, what he did mattered. If Noah, after being declared righteous by faith, didn't pick up a hammer, the story is over. No remnant left. If Noah, rather than building what God had commanded him to build, spent his days declaring on Instagram how glad he was that he didn't have to do any work now because God did it all. Well, that would have mattered. It would have mattered when the rain came. It would have mattered because Noah's faithful obedience was God's providential plan to move redemption forward." And Noah was a shining example of James 2:18, where James says, "Someone will say, hypothetically, "You have faith. Great. I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works." And I'll show you my faith by my works. That's, that's Noah. And God said, <laughs> build a massive boat. According to very specific parameters, in the middle of the land, in a world where rain doesn't exist yet. And it'll take you about 70 years. And you and your people will be the laughingstock of the city the entire time. Oh, and you'll also need to gather up all the animals of the earth according to specific categories. And we often think that it's just a pair of every animal, but we saw in chapter 7, Noah had to get seven pairs of every clean animal. Now, why just a pair of unclean, but a pair, seven pairs of clean? Track with me because this, this is important. Well, it's probably because Israel could only eat and sacrifice clean animals. So they would need more of them. But here's the thing. They didn't eat animals yet. And they didn't have the sacrificial law yet from Leviticus 11 describing what that even means. Verse 22. But he did all of it. All that God commanded. And the point is, all of this Noah is doing not just by faith, but in light of realities that he didn't even understand at all. For 70 years his obedience to God's word was not contingent upon his understanding of God's purposes it was the opposite his understanding of God's purposes would come after his obedience to God's word and that's huge do you see that that's humility that's true humility The proud man or the proud child says, I'll obey God when it makes sense to me. And if a text doesn't make sense, then I'll edit God and then make that the authoritative text. That's what the proud person says. But the humble person says, I'll do whatever God says because I'm not God. And he is. And he is infinitely wiser and infinitely better than I am. So Noah builds the ark, whatever that is, by faith over decades. And he starts assembling the animals by faith. Seven of these. Okay, if you say so. And then chapter seven, verse one then Laura, uh, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And and so the, the time has come. We skipped some of the details on the ark, we'll probably hit that next week. The time has come. Noah and his family, the, the righteous remnant, are told to take their place in the ark and and to load up all the animals and the food. And then we come to verse 4. And the Lord begins the final countdown of the final week of his first creation. Verse 4. In seven days, I will send rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. We will start anew. And then verse five, we see this phrase repeated and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Whatever you say, Lord, I'll do it. We talk often about doing things in obedience today for our grandchildren's sake. This is thinking in terms of covenant succession. We want to pass the covenant along to our people. And I'm not sure that there's a more vivid picture of this in all of the scriptures Then we get in Noah's obedience to God's grace and in obedience to God's word. He built an ark. And because of this, his people had a shelter from the storm. And the covenant blessings would not just come to them, but then they would go out from them and through them. And 99% of the company of all the saints in the new heavens and the new earth will be there because Noah built an ark in faith when he didn't understand what the ultimate purpose would look like. And, and saints of God, I'm here to say that this is a very timely word for us because we are not in a dissimilar time than Noah. As wickedness and corruption are presently on the rise in our world in increasingly bizarre and twisted ways, and they are after our children. If we don't catechize them, they will be catechized. God has given us a similar task as Noah. We are tasked with building an ark of a covenant community in the midst of a secular tsunami. And this ark won't be built with the same material of gopher wood and pitch, but it will be built with the same exact method, namely believe and obey, saving faith that puts on a hard hat and gets to work. This is the rhythm of the righteous. This is the structure of the ark. This is always the ingredients of reformation. Believe everything God has said and then obey everything God has said and oh and repent a lot because you will not obey a lot. But that's okay because there is grace. And the first thing here that we must believe. So that's the rhythm. Believe and obey. The first thing, the foundation for everything else is believing what God has declared about us because of Jesus Christ. And it's the same gospel that he preached to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. You have been saved into the covenant people of God, Christians. All your guilt is gone All your sin debt has been settled. They were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And they were buried into the heart of the earth when he was buried. And then when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you rose with him into eternal life. You are a new creation. Not just you will be, you already are. And the dead skin is being pulled away more and more to reveal the glory that will be. What we call sanctification. And that is completely the work of the grace of God that is yours by faith. Step 1, believe that every day and every hour and glory in that. And then obey. Purpose to grow in specific obedience to everything God has commanded. We we see this in the life of Noah. We we see this not just there, but in the great commission that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. I think we forget this sometimes, right? Go make disciples of the nations, baptize them, then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. That's not Old Testament. (laughs) That's the Great Commission for Christians. So, you want to do great things for the kingdom, Christian? Grow in old fashioned, boring obedience to the Word of God in the specific ways that you sin. Don't let that stay vague. God didn't give Noah vague instructions. He gave very specific instructions. And so it is for us. We are called to specific obedience. And So where, where is it hard for you to obey right now? Where do you struggle? Do you find yourself grumbling all the time? Well, that, that's a sin. That is probably the most common presumptuous sin. It's It's mine. And it's, it is a sin, and it really matters. It's not a small sin. It's a huge sin. God hates it. So instead, I need to obey. I need to obey Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Or have you gotten out of a rhythm of daily prayer? Well, obedience for you would be starting to pepper just a few prayers throughout the day. Set a couple timers on your phone as prompts Prayer prompts and then pray. Pray for your family and pray for your worries and pray the Lord's Prayer or pray the daily psalm. Obey. Or married folks. Has the the rhythm of leadership and submission gotten out of whack? And is there a low hum of bitterness in your marriage? Okay. That's a point of obedience for you that really matters. Bitterness in marriages poisons downstream generational blessings. But thanks be to God, it can be dealt with quickly. Read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 together this week. Read it together. Own your individual sin, wherever that is. Express your thoughts. Pray for each other. And then obey. Obey what it says. And if you need help to talk through it, invite a trusted friend or an elder to do that. Get back on the road of fellowship. May your grandchildren rejoice because of it. Children, do you find yourselves back talking more and more your parents with more of a cavalier spirit? The word says to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So disobeying is sin that needs to be repented of. And then obey. Obey your parents on purpose as if you're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ because you are. Because you are. The apostle even puts a highlighter on it saying, It's the first command that comes with a blessing, that you will live long in the land. It matters. And of course, this is just a tiny smattering, but just because I didn't mention your struggle doesn't mean you're off the hook. Ask the Holy Spirit. Make me more keenly aware. Put a stone in my shoe of what sin is mine and help me to obey. Noah obeyed all God commanded him, and that's why the ark floated. He pursued obedience. Or do you need to grow in that? And the beautiful thing is, friends, as we together individually pursue this righteous rhythm of trust and obey five minutes at a time, our individual efforts are being blessed by God to build up the entire body of the church, to build not just an ark to preserve us during this season, but to build a Christian culture that our grandchildren will rejoice to inherit. And so here's what I want us to leave with, which Noah, again, is a glorious picture of. God always brings reformation by blessing the obedience of a righteous remnant. God always brings reformation through blessing the obedience of a righteous remnant. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace demonstrated here in the life of Noah that you gave him the honor of being the keeper of the covenant as the flood set to rise. And thank you for empowering his faithful response so that the righteous seed that would lead to our Lord Jesus Christ would be safely held through the flood. And in the same way, may you build us up as a righteous people that the ark of our church might not just preserve the truth of the gospel in our day, but would perpetuate the gospel out into the corners of greater Goodlessville and down to the generations and to a thousand generations as you have expressed your intention to do for your people. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us. to pray. A quick charge for you. In the sermon I said we are in a similar position to Noah, and in some ways we are, but in other ways we are in a very dissimilar situation. Noah saw in part we have the substance, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, Jesus Christ reigning in glory. Jesus Christ, whose kingdom will not end. And Noah was all alone. We are not all alone. We are part of the universal church. And there are thousands in this city pulling in the same direction and praying in the same direction. And Aslan is on the move. So take heart, dear Christian. Do not become cynical. Become confident in the Lord Jesus Christ's reign going out more and more. So extend your hands to receive his blessing upon you. With believing hearts, hear this. Pilgrim Hill, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And amen.